Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And we have another episode from Salt Lake Comic Con Fanex. Uh, once again, our friend Brian Young was kind enough to guest host since Tracy had some conflicts that weekend uh, of the show. And this is the second of two live shows that Brian and I did at the con. The first one, if you haven't already listened, focused on film history in Salt Lake City. But for this one, we went a little broader and a little more uh, with touchstones on pop culture. And we talked about some of the mythology of Hitler and the Nazi obsession with the occult and a little bit about how those stories stack up to the way they're portrayed in fictional form in the Indiana Jones stories. So for this first segment, Holly and Brian are going to talk a little bit about the looting that was done by the Nazis in an effort to collect art for Hitler. And they'll also touch on the propaganda efforts that were created to further the position that the Nazi rise to power was somehow part of a divine destiny. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Brian Young. I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting for Tracy. I'm sorry. Well, I, there's part of me that wants you to say, and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. <laughs> I, I'm already going to do something that will make her mad at me, I'm sure. So it's, I'm not going to do that. You could never make me mad at you. We can start over if you want. No, we're good. Uh, so uh, it is fairly common knowledge. I don't think I'm going to blow anybody's minds with the statement that Nazis were pretty prolific looters during their time. Uh, we know this from actual history, and even Indiana Jones told us this because the Nazis are constantly racing against our hero to reach these artifacts of great significance that are both historically and mystically important. And so to set the stage so you guys know kind of where we're going on this little path, we're going to talk first about a couple of Nazi divisions that were set up as part of this ongoing hunt for treasures. And then we're going to talk a little bit about one particular piece of art that Hitler really coveted, and it's beautiful and amazing. Uh, and its possible significance as a connection to ultimate and supreme power. And then we're going to talk a little bit about Nazi gold, uh, including the modern claims that a lost cache of gold and other precious items have been found. And then we're going to kind of segue into touching on the ways that Indiana, the Indiana Jones film series did and did not get the whole Nazi story right. That's the scoop. Are you ready to go? As I'll ever be. Let's do it. So we're going to start with... Uh so massive was the quest to accumulate important art that the Nazis had actually, they created an art theft unit, and this, this was called the ERR. And this intensive effort to steal great masterpieces was all aimed at fulfilling Hitler's uh, incredibly narcissistic dream of creating a super museum, the Fuhrer Museum, uh, and I'm not making that up, which was massive in size where every major piece of art would be housed. Yeah, you'll see it sometimes described as the size of an entire city in and of itself, which I have to say, as much as he was clearly a jerk we know from history, there's part of me that's like, man, that would be a cool museum. <laughs> I mean, I, from an art history standpoint, I'm like, I don't know. Only have Could to somebody cool place. try to do that instead? Uh, and as pieces were acquired, they were usually stored, because they never actually built this museum, obviously, we would know about it. Uh, they were stored in the, I'm probably going to butcher this, I'm sorry, any German speakers, uh, Altaza salt mine near the Austrian Alps. And there were an estimated 12,000 pieces of art that were actually successfully stolen and stored there. So he really was well on his way to fulfilling this dream. 
So we know that, that Hitler was, obviously, he was interested in art because he wanted to fill his Fuhrer Museum, but he was also incredibly interested in the supernatural, which is a lot of where the Indiana Jones stories come from. So, so he was so much interested in the supernatural that on July 1st, 1935, Heinrich uh, Himmler, the head of the SS, established a paranormal research group within the no- Nazi organization. Uh, pa- uh, Holly's going to have to help me with the pronunciation here since I'm horrible about that. But the Ananerb. The Ananerb, uh, which translates to Inheritance of the Forefathers, is also called the Ancestral Heritage Research and Teaching Organization, and its job was to research the paranormal. And it sounds like something out of a Mike Mignola comic book. Doesn't it? I mean, you see where the influences on a lot of comic works come from when you look at some of the really weird tendrils that the Nazi Party had out. Uh, it, it's a really rich, rich soil from which to, to gather. Uh, and in February of 1938, the excavation department, so sort of the archaeology team of the SS, was actually transferred over to the Ananerb, so they were joined together. And this officially created the Nazi archaeology division. And the Ananerb and the work that it did was so important to Hitler, and he was so into what they were doing that he expanded it again in addition to that merger uh, later during World War II. So a variety of strange and often creepy efforts were made by this group. They hunted Yeti in Tibet. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was something they sought in Ethiopia, which is where you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of got their ideas. And they hunted for the Holy Grail in... Uh, I want you to try it just to see. Languedoc? You're close. It's Languedoc, if you speak French. You'll see it, and it looks like it says Languedoc. And some people say it that way in the Americanized version. Uh, Yeah, I'm horrible at pronunciation, so I apologize to everyone listening to this. You're just fine. Um, So astrologers were were even consulted to help plan military strategy, which is absurd on its own. Um, And attempts were made to reanimate the dead and create super soldiers of the living using a combination of medical science and mysticism, which is... One of those things you hear and go, that must have been in the movies, but this was really stuff they were doing. Yeah, there have been discoveries of Nazi officers that were preserved after their deaths in the hopes that they could one day bring them back to life. Uh, so anybody that thinks that whole like mythology of Walt Disney's head somewhere, like that may sound creepy, but they got nothing on Hitler's plans. Like He really had what he was hoping was going to be an army of question mark zombie officers. Uh, so once again, it's, it's way stranger than anything we could come up with, I think, in our own minds. Um, and if you believe in the mythology, the hope here was really that the Ananerb was going to find retroactive proof of divine providence, specifically supporting Nazi dogmas. So among other things, Hitler allegedly wanted scientific proof somehow that God wanted the Nazi party to rise. So... Uh, But there was also sort of on the other side of that, whether or not they were successful in finding that proof, there was also a big effort at sort of a mysticism propaganda where the Ananerb and the the great minds that were there, I mean, these were incredibly intelligent men, were really working to kind of build this mythos that was going to support the idea of a perfect Aryan race and the Nazi goals being tied into that. So it was kind of a, a dual process at that point. It was like, we're searching for the proof, but until we have the proof, we're going to make stuff up. Well, and they were, they were known for their propaganda efforts. I mean, you hear about their propaganda efforts everywhere, and that they would use mythology like this to play into that. It's just not surprising. 
So next up, uh, Brian and I are going to talk a little bit about art history and how a famous painting may have been part of Hitler's hopes for ultimate power. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the Monuments Men, both the movie and the book, and you will get some bonus unhappy baby noises. Uh, So the next thing we're going to talk about is a really important, outside of any of the Nazi story, it's a really important piece of art uh, historically, and that is the adoration of the mystic lamb. And this is an example of non-gold quests that Hitler directed in search of both art and mystical power connected to the same painting. So we are going to talk a little bit about this painting. So the painting is considered by many to be one of the most influential paintings of all time. Uh, It was... uh, uh, first, it was commissioned by uh, Hubert von Eich, uh, and then his brother, after he died, finished it, and it took him eight years to finish. Uh, and his name was Jan von Eichs, uh, and it was the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb. And it's one of only four pieces of art mentioned in the Treaty of Versailles uh, as part of a stipulation that this work must be returned to Belgium from Germany. And that particular fa- fact always just stuck in Hitler's craw. Uh, Hitler notoriously hated the Treaty of Versailles, and much of what he did in undoing that, uh, undoing it through World War II and the beginnings of that were directly direct results of his, his hatred for it. Um, the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb was also the first major oil painting when it was completed in 1432. And it's the most stolen painting of all time, which is kind of a dubious uh, note of honor, but... Uh, what's really interesting is that the Nazis, and specifically Hitler and uh, Hermann Goering, were obsessed with this painting. And they both wanted it desperately. They each wanted it for themselves so bad that this became like a, a long train of maneuvering and one-upmanship where like the shipment would be headed to Goering's house and Hitler would divert it somehow and then try to get it to his place and then the other guy would step in. And they, they were kind of playing this, I'm hoping, good-natured. I don't, I don't know how you can say good-natured tied to either of them, but they had this rivalry about it that they were both trying to steal it from each other at the same time they were super obsessed with its mystic power. So the reason for this obsession, uh, they were varied. Obviously, the adoration of the mystic lamb falls into the category of major art, uh, so it fit the bill for the Führer Museum plan that they wanted to, to carry out, but it was also important to Hitler because it was in the Northern Renaissance style, which Hitler had an affinity for, and the subject of the painting is both holy and mystic, uh, so it just sort of like there were a lot of checkboxes of criteria that he wanted to to collect for his propaganda and for his museum, and this just hit all of them. And it's important to note as we sort of talk about Hitler and his obsession with art, you guys know he was a painter before he was a weasel, right? Like he started out as a painter, but he wasn't very good at it. Uh, so I guess the weasel path was the better option for him. He seemed to have some proclivities there. Uh, but this painting is really, really lovely. It features more than 100 different figures. Uh, But at the center of the work, this is really where things get very important, Uh, there's an altar with a sacrificial lamb on it, and that is a representation of Christ. And this lamb is bleeding into a representation of the Holy Grail. And if rumors are correct, uh, because we don't have a, you know, Hitler never, like, went on record saying this, but it is believed that he thought that the painting contained a code and that that code was going to reveal a map to the Arma Christi. The Arma Christi, uh, known in English as the Instruments of Christ's Passion, 
consists of the physical objects related to the story of Christ's life cycle. These include the crown of thorns, the holy grail, the cross of crucifixion, Jesus' burial shroud, and the spear of destiny. And, and if you're familiar with a lot of the pop culture around this, these are objects that come up a lot. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're sort of interesting and fascinating historically, and because people have attached so much mystical power to them, it's natural that they would really sow the seeds for some pretty interesting fiction. Uh, and it probably won't surprise anyone to hear that many people, including Hitler, uh, believe that if a human could possess the objects of the Arma Christi, that he or she could take on supernatural powers. And who doesn't want that? Uh, and Hitler was really, really into this idea that he was going to get these things and use his newfound supernatural juju to win the war and complete the Third Reich's rise to power. And so this would cement his place as this would kind of fall in line with that idea that God wanted him to have this power and it would cement his place as the leader really of the world eventually was his hope. So on April 10th, 1934, one of a dozen oak panels from the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb was stolen from the St. Bavo Cathedral in Ghent, Belgium. Uh, and if you're wondering only why, why, why only one panel was snatched, it's possibly, at least in part, because the work, which is also called the Ghent Altarpiece, uh, is mammoth. It's, it weighs approximately two tons, and it's the size of a barn door. Yeah, that's not something you just, like, stick under your shirt and run with. Um, Oh, that poor child. Uh, <laughs> uh, so this missing panel is also known as the Righteous Judges panel, and this features a group of wise men. And in 1943, before the Nazis had the other 11 panels, uh, the Nazi propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, and SS leader, Heinrich Himmler, were hatching this plan that they were going to find the missing Righteous Judges panel because they wanted to give it as a gift to Hitler. Uh, they didn't find it. Uh, but the fact that, that that specific panel was stolen perhaps to keep it out of Nazi hands uh, uh, and then was hunted for by key leaders in the Nazi party has continued to give weight to the idea that it perhaps did carry this map that Hitler believed in. Um, it, it's, it's interesting in, in the whole Ghent altarpiece uh, – it, it doesn't get into Indiana Jones, but if you've seen the film uh, Monuments Men, uh, that's sort of the – the crux of that movie is them finding the stolen pieces of the Ghent altarpiece that the Nazis made away with. And it, that, that, the movie embellishes a lot, as movies do, but it's based on a really great uh, nonfiction book called, curiously, The Monuments Men, um, by Robert Edsel uh, with Brett Witter. And uh, it's just a really fascinating story, and the movie's just fun to watch. And even if the movie's not as accurate, like, the shots in the movie of the Ghent altarpiece are just gorgeous to look at. Yeah, it's one of those paintings that you see, and it kind of rocks you back. There's just so much to it, and you understand why it's so incredibly important in art history. Uh, but now we're going to shift off of art as much as I would like to talk about it forever. We're going to talk about Nazi gold. Uh, so... <laughs> So uh, when it came to gold looting under the Nazis, if you don't know about any of this, you might brace, it's a little gruesome. Um, they left no stone unturned, and there is even evidence that they took gold out of the fillings of teeth of people in concentration camps and then melted that down and reused it to make gold fillings for Nazi officers. It's so gross, uh, including Hitler himself. So a document discovered in 2009 indicated that Hitler's dentist had on hand 11 pounds of dental gold collected at concentration camps and kept on hand for the treatment of those senior Nazi officers. And while 
11 pounds doesn't seem like a lot in terms of gold it is. And when you consider that it was extracted from existing fillings, it's, that, that represents a lot of fillings and a lot of gold. Yeah, I mean, if you have a filling, you know it's a dinky amount in your tooth. Uh, so that's a lot of people's gold teeth that were, or gold fillings that were used. But of course, they also took gold jewelry from prisoners. Uh, and there's really no telling how many gold objects were stolen throughout Europe during the Nazi looting enterprise and then melted down and recast into ingots with the Nazi stamp on them. And because of the recasting process, it's really impossible to identify the sources that those gold ingots were made from. For many years, there was a legend of a lost train loaded with gold and other treasures that the Nazis tried to get out of eastern Germany as the Soviets approached at the end of World War II, and you'll see a little bit of that in in monuments, too. Not just gold, but trains full of art. Uh, It's just a a good movie. It pushes all my history and art nerd buttons in all the right right ways. Um, But uh, according to the story, the train entered a tunnel complex in Poland and vanished. It was never seen again. But this story about this train going into this tunnel and then vanishing, while it sounds like a really good sort of ghosty story, it is basically, this account is based on a situation of relayed information, like a wacky game of telephone, where it's sort of like, I heard it from my friend who has a cousin who works with a guy who says he talked to somebody that saw that train go into that tunnel. So there's really not solid evidence. It's all circumstantial and kind of word of mouth. Uh, There was a secret Nazi base that was under construction beneath the Polish Owl Mountain Range, where the train is alleged to have been hidden, but that base was never completed. So you guys talked about this this gold train and the Amber Room in your Unearthed episode at the end of 2015, actually, and we're going to give a bit of a recap with some additional information? Yeah. uh, Last year, many experts uh, refuted the idea that any such train ever existed. Uh, They did work based on magnetic, gravimetric, and georadar studies. And the issue had been brought back into public focus by claims that the train had been located and that a dig should immediately ensue. And the two men who believed that they had found the train, Piotr Koper and Andreas Reuter, uh, still believe in the existence of the train. And based on the fact that they have found what was once a tunnel entrance that has been closed over, they really continued their assertion that there has to be a train somewhere in those tunnels. So according to Koper and Richter, they were given information by a witness to the cunning and stealthy stashing of the train. Their alleged witness told that the Nazi, uh, told, told them that the Nazis dug out an, an embankment to lay out the diversion track, which they routed the train down. And then once the train was secure, they removed all the rails and reburied the embankment, which would make it invisible to anyone and make it easy to lose. And that sounds like one of those amazing heist stories. I'm like, how could they pull it off? But the Nazis were organized. They had some skills, and they were able to really like put plans into action. So it's not completely outside the realm of possibility that they could have done something like that. But again, there's no real scientific proof that this train is sitting there. Uh, But there are a number of reasons that this story gained so much traction and is really held on, and there really are camps of sort of like believers despite evidence to the contrary. Uh, And Krakow's Mining Academy completed all these surveys and they found absolutely nothing. But part of the appeal is that, I mean, people love a a juicy lost treasure story. I do. I'm sure many of you do. Uh, And the idea of claiming gold that was stolen by the Nazis has its own appeal. It doesn't really need an explanation. Of course we want to right the wrongs that were committed by those people. So another reason it's a very exciting story and and it's a beneficial story to Poland um, 
and specifically to one city. So the, the district governor of Walbrook, is that right? I think so. Uh, where the gold train was alleged to be buried, told The Guardian last year, quote, I'm no Indiana Jones, but my colleagues in the rest of Poland now call me the gold governor. We're, a, we're in a special economic zone. Life is tough, but the gold train has brought a tourism boom. So you can see where people would want to propagate the story. I mean, it was really beneficial to some areas of Poland that were struggling financially. And so, I mean, I can't blame them for wanting to kind of make a positive out of this situation. But that brings us, because the governor kindly mentioned Indiana Jones, to Indiana Jones. But first, we'll have a word from our sponsor. So now, to finish off the chat with Brian Young about Nazis and art... Uh, Holly and Brian are going to talk a little bit about how the stories of the Nazis' obsessions with the paranormal and the uh, and the precious shaped some of the story elements from the Indiana Jones films. Now we are ready for this last chunk of our uh, actual history lesson, which is where we start talking about the Indiana Jones versions of these stories. And in terms of tone... The Indiana Jones movies really got a lot right. Of course, many of those plot elements, as we've mentioned several times, were inspired by Hitler's well-documented paranormal and occult obsessions. So in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is the first film in the Indiana Jones saga, uh, even early on it's remarked that one can understand Hitler's interest in the Ark. It shoots lightning, I don't know, power of God or something. Uh, Marcus has that fantastically delivered line early on in the film, the army which carries the Ark before it is invincible, and certainly in line with Hitler's belief that holy relics would grant him supernatural power. And I feel compelled to note that while that is the first film released in the series, if you go chronologically time-wise... Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom is first. And I'm going to go on record and probably get booed. Temple of Doom is my favorite Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> I love Willie Scott. Oh, I love Willie Scott. It's my second favorite, actually, after Raiders of the Lost Ark. I love that movie. And what I really love is that if you watch the movies chronologically now, the Indiana Jones series starts with a big song and dance number. (laughs) It's kind of like the most bizarre and wonderful thing uh, and completely out of tone for the rest of the series, but I just delight in it. Uh, so we mentioned earlier that the Nazi division, the Ananarb, looked for the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia. And that is a counter to where it lands in Raiders. In that version, the digging happened in Tanis, Egypt. And perhaps at the time, Egypt seemed more romantic than Ethiopia, although there have been real-world theories that the Ark ended up in Tanis. So it's possibly a, a case where it just seemed a little bit more plausible in terms of screenwriting than the area where the Nazis looked, although film has always been really sort of obsessed with Egypt. Yeah, especially when you're talking about, like, archaeology. Like, Egypt is sort of that mystical land. Yes. So, um, moving forward to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, once again, it's Marcus Brody who utters the words which we, we link back to the beliefs of Hitler, though from the beloved friend of Indy it sounds charming rather than insidious, and he says, the search for the cup of Christ is the search for the divine in all of us. I love Marcus Brody. I do too, which is why Last Crusade is sort of my least favorite. It's of hard. Them, because they turned him into kind of a joke. It's hard, although I like a lot of the bad guys too. I'm a big Belloc fan. I, you mean Belosh, they call him Belosh. Well, they do there in Tannis, but... Yeah. I'm just saying. I like that, I like that lizardy French dude. Um, I have this... I don't want them to ever remake it, don't get me wrong, but I have this thing in my head where if they ever remake it, clearly Vincent Cassell should play that part, because he's in that same genre of lizardy Frenchmen that are oddly appealing. 
Um, uh, but just as, the, as was the case with Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, in the Last Crusade, we find out that what they really did was they got the tone and the idea of this obsession and hunt correct, uh, but the Nazis' interest in an item had kind of shifted in the reality in terms of location. So in reality, the Ananerb hunted for the Holy Grail in the former French province of Languedoc, uh, but in the film, the Grail Chase leads to the Canyon of the Crescent Moon. Once again, a very romantic-looking desert scenario, which in reality is in Jordan, certainly not France. Uh, <laughs> and then in terms of the last sort of not quite real, obviously the Indiana Jones series has a bunch of wacky hijinks that are not grounded in reality, even though the searches for these things are real. And I, I don't know, do you think the Nazis ever specifically targeted a father-son archaeology team? Uh, wouldn't that be great if... Um, no, I, I, I think, uh, no. But it would be great. Like, wouldn't that be a wondrous discovery that somewhere out there there had been uh, two men hunting for the same thing and hunted by Nazis? It makes a really great story. It does. Uh, I love the indie movies. And I love talking about Nazi history because it's fascinating. I almost feel like that uh, rubbernecker at, a, at a, uh, an accident where it's like, it's so terrible, but I'm so fascinated by it. And just the concept of so much intense and insane ideology, so focused and so uh, far-reaching. I mean, I, I just don't even know how you could pull off something like that today. Well, that, that level of fanaticism is something that, that uh, you know, maybe we feel is unique to the Nazis, but maybe, maybe it could. I don't Maybe it could happen. We hope not. Fingers crossed. All right, so that was my conversation with Brian about this topic, but we actually have a little more because of recent developments. Because the Nazi gold train is a developing story, of course, a new set of reports came out right after this live episode was recorded. It's not really a huge update or anything, but it ties to this episode and our unearthed episodes from the end of 2015. So at the end of March of this year, this is 2016, there were actually protests in Poland at the site where the Nazi gold train is believed by some to be. Even though there has been very thorough surveying of the area, which found no suggestion of the train, there are residents that live around there. Again, we talked about how this is kind of an economically depressed area right now. Uh, and these residents really want the dig to move forward. And it appears that excavation may finally soon get underway. So perhaps we will have some new news, some real news soon. But I really feel compelled also to point out that this news has only really been filtered out and reported in kind of tabloid style papers. Uh, so it's either not well substantiated, although they do have quotes from the two men that are behind this effort, uh, or most press kind of feels like this case really was closed after the surveys in late 2015 found nothing really of merit. Yeah, even when we were doing our unearthed episodes, it was this back and forth, yes it is, no it isn't, yes it is, no it isn't, and then finally ending with, oh. <laughs> yeah, so they did all those geologic surveys uh, that we talked about in the live show, and they really feel like there's nothing there. Most of the scientists that have studied the area feel like there's nothing there. But there are enough people that still think, no, we really think you maybe didn't catch it and there is still something here, that they're still fighting 
you know, to, to get it unearthed and excavated and see if there's maybe some exciting treasure down there. Uh, so if you want to hear more from Brian Young, my fabulous co-host on this one, you can find him just about everywhere. Uh, the book that we featured in our live show last October is a children's illustrated history of presidential assassination. I know lots of our listeners have bought it since they heard that episode and we have only heard rave reviews of it. Uh, and his newest book, which is titled The Aeronaut, is an alternate history fiction spy thriller. It is set in World War One, and you can find those books and him at brianyoungfiction.com or you can connect with him on Twitter at Swankmotron. And I want to once again thank Salt Lake Comic Con for having me out to the show. I was there for five days, and it was absolutely a blast every single day. I had so much fun and such a delightful time. And it's a great show that's very fan-oriented. It's not so much like a big marketing presence-type con. So if you like more fan-style cons, this might be a great one to check out. Uh, again, that is Salt Lake Comic Con Fanex, and they're amazing. So thank you again for having me. Do you also have some listener mail? I do. Uh, and this is one that I, again, it's something somebody made for us because we've been getting a lot of really amazing handmade things. Uh, and this is from our listener, Jillian, who has some of the most beautiful handwriting. It is so neat on earth. And she says, hello from beautiful Banff. Tracy and Holly, thank you so much for the many hours of knowledge and entertainment. I often cross-stitch while listening, but quickly realize that family and friends can only own so many cross-stitch pieces. To be able to keep my hands busy, I had to think of people outside of my circle. Holly, I saw this pattern and immediately thought of you. I hope it fits in well with your Haunted Mansion collection. Cheers, Jillian. Oh my gosh, she cross-stitched me this beautiful portrait of the hitchhiking ghost from the Haunted Mansion with the Haunted Mansion in the background. It is so cute, and I'm absolutely hanging it in my living room with all of my other Haunted Mansion pieces. Uh, I love it, love it, love it so much. Thank you so much, Jillian. I can never really tell you how much I appreciate all of these things that people make for us, because they're beautiful. and They're so pretty. Everybody knows I'm like a big art dork and I love art and creativity. So it really always just blows me away and delights me to to have that be something that people want to share with us. I love it, love it, love it. Uh, if you would like to write to us about your love of art and creativity or anything else, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash history or on Twitter at history. You can find us at Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and on Instagram at history. Uh, if you would like to learn a little bit more about what Brian and I talked about, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works, type in the word Nazis in the search bar, and you will get uh, an article called What Did the Nazis Have to Do with Archaeology, among a variety of other topics on the subject. Uh, if you would like to visit us, you can do that at mistinhistory.com, where you can find show notes for every episode Tracy and I have worked on together, as well as an archive of every episode ever of the show of all time, from way back when it was just a few minutes long in the very beginning. And we encourage you, come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 